Hello, and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. In this week's episode, academic and author Anthony Gardner will be speaking to the art historian Marco Illich about his new book, A Slow-Burning Fire, The Rise of the New Art Practice in Yugoslavia. In his new book, Marco documents and analyzes the various art scenes that developed in Yugoslavia throughout the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. He also explores the relationship between cultural production and Yugoslavia's unique political context, which was separate from both Stalinist communism and mid-century capitalism. Speaking with Marco about the book today is Anthony Gardner, Associate Professor in Contemporary Art History and Theory at the University of Oxford, and the author of Politically Unbecoming, Post-Socialist Art Against Democracy, published by the MIT Press. Marco, shall we sort of ease ourselves in? <laughs> sure, sounds good. Well, I've said this before, but you know, it really is an amazing book and a great achievement. So I think the key thing to start off with actually is, is to thank you and congratulate you for making such an impressive um, addition to the scholarship that we have on not just art from Yugoslavia, but I think Yugoslavia's histories in general. So maybe one of the first questions that, we might want to start exploring is actually what is new art practice? You know, this is the key idea within the book or the key focus of the book. But maybe for those people who haven't yet come in contact with the term before or might have heard about some of the, the key figures but not necessarily the context from which they developed, what is new art practice and what was distinct about it from what was happening elsewhere in, in Europe or indeed globally at the time? Well, first of all, thank you, Anthony, so much for such a kind and generous uh, kind of appraisal of the book. And I think that's a great point on which to start our conversation today. So in its broadest possible definition, uh, the new art practice has come to refer to forms of conceptual and performance art that emerged in Yugoslavia's largest and most developed cities from the mid-1960s, and which kind of fueled by the uh, youth movements of 1968 took on a more socially engaged form in the 1970s. A lot of people will have heard of this term before, largely because of its really well-known international affiliates, including the likes of Marina Abramovich, Sanya Rebekovic, Mladen Stalinovic, uh, among others. But the term itself was coined in 1978 through a landmark exhibition that took place at Zagreb's Museum of Contemporary Art, which was called the New Art Practice in Yugoslavia, which was the kind of the first timely appraisal to recognize a singular thread in the work of young artists and collectives from many of the country's capitals. For this reason, the new art practice is often seen as a kind of form of engagement that allows young artists to distance themselves from the art being made around them. And it's often allowed, aligned to parallel processes that were taking place in North America and Western Europe and Western conceptual art, which is similarly seen as a kind of phenomenon that was seeking to question the role of museums and galleries uh, in the promotion of art, uh, its market status and its relationship with audiences. But at the same time, although these parallels have been made between the New York practice and Western conceptualism, I think that kind of a real striking contrast is the fact that New York practice emerged within a socialist context. So there wasn't a kind of Western style developed uh, art market. And so without this kind of developed art market and corporate sponsorship, the New York practice can't really fit within 
you know, Benjamin Bucklow's uh, famous definition of conceptual art as being kind of servile to the operating logic of late capitalism. And also it doesn't really fit within kind of Eastern European art historical narratives either because Yugoslavia was not a member of the Warsaw Pact, but a non-aligned country with a third wave political and economic system based on work and self-management. So very often with um, Eastern European art histories, uh, there is a tendency to take on this kind of position of individuals suffering against repressive socialist regimes and their kind of powerful systems of uh, institutions. So in the absence of a kind of developed art market and direct state control, I think that what was kind of significant about the new art practice is that it emerged from a system of state-supported youth institutions, which were known as students' cultural centres. So one of the things that's really interesting about um, this term that emerges, as you said, in, in 1978, it's given its definition, the Zagreb show, but it's this idea of newness. I mean, what was the work that was being done in... Yugoslavia before the mid-1960s? I mean, was it the socialist realism that a lot of people might be expecting of uh, practices in Central and Eastern Europe at the time? That's a great question. I mean, in the absence of a kind of art market and direct state involvement, a lot of interpretations of the new art practice have kind of looked towards another adversary um, in the face of what's come to be known as socialist modernism. And this term socialist modernism uh, kind of implies Yugoslavia's uh, abandonment of socialist realist dogma and subsequent liberalisation following its expulsion from the Communist Information Bureau in 1948. So having to open itself up to Western Europe and America, both for economic assistance and military support and to develop a kind of cultural system that was compatible with these new geopolitical circumstances, Yugoslavia kind of began to organise shows of modern American and European art as a way of involving itself in the international art world. But the issue I have with this term socialist realism is that it very often kind of implies that, first of all, it was a this kind of homogenous phenomenon, but also that it was a kind of official doctrine. And what I propose instead is that socialist realism itself was kind of rather loose and disparate field of practices, which was encased within a range of institutions and associates with a variety of individuals. Um, and I think that what's also important to bear in mind is that there were quite a lot of kind of avant-garde uh, histories and heritages that kind of predated even the Second World War in Yugoslavia. Um, so with things like um, the avant-garde group Zenit, you know, the Bauhaus had a hold and influence there in Yugoslavia as well, as well as the Gorgona group, for example, from Zagreb which was based on this kind of anti-art movement, along with, in the 1950s, Exile 51, and New Tendencies, um, which Armin Medos writes about in his book, New Tendencies, which was published with the MIT Press a couple of years ago, through which artists kind of wanted to explore art as a form of visual research. Um, and I think that you can really kind of see these kinds of influences permeating in the specific art scenes. But also I think that what's important is these kind of lineages of European modernism, which predated the communist revolution, which are particularly dominant in places such as Belgrade. So thinking about the differences from some of the earlier practices like New Tendencies then, one of the things that's really striking about so much of the work that you explore is, is precisely the kinds of connections that emerge between cities, but also their their sort of interest in internationalisms of different kinds. As you say, that there's a strong engagement with what's happening in Western Europe and North America, 
a lot of artists coming into some of these student cultural centres. And I was really struck by the relationship then between what's happening within Yugoslavia and how they're seeing art practice internationally. Because there's a lot of tension that emerges then between you know, the, the different kinds of roles that art might play within Yugoslavia as it's going through enormous changes through the 1960s and 70s and how that they might engage with some of the international discourses and, 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 and protagonists uh, that you mentioned as well, like Joseph Boyce, Michael Koros goes to, to Yugoslavia as well, along with a number of other artists and writers from uh, the North Atlantic. So maybe we can talk a bit about the, these tensions between the local scenes and, and the international you know, that role that art plays or that the artist saw that art plays within Yugoslavia at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think that one of the main arguments that this book advances is that Yugoslav artists were developing uh, practices that were both parallel to uh, developments that were happening in Western Europe and North America, as you say, but were also critical towards their counterparts in, in, in the North Atlantic. And I think that what's interesting to kind of recognise and acknowledge is that the new art practice emerged at a significant time in Yugoslavia's political development, which kind of coincided with a, a time in which the country was introducing market reforms, a moment which was seen as kind of the tolerant years where party hardliners did kind of temporarily defeated. And when Yugoslavia is aligning itself to the West and its markets. And I think that what's significant about the emergence of the New York practice is once again the kind of space in which they emerged. So by tracing the kind of international networks of artistic communication exchange that these youth cultural institutions solicited, I wanted to explore how arts were responding to kind of developments through their own kind of position in Yugoslavia and ultimately through their kind of experiences of Yugoslav socialism and the system of socialist self-management and the kind of changes they underwent through these 20 years or so. But I think that it's also, as you were saying, looking at these developments in Western Europe through their own position and through the kind of context of Yugoslav socialism, I think that a lot of artists were kind of recognizing and registering the kind of um, the kind of disillusionment regarding kind of conceptual arts, commercialization and commodification. But I think one of the things that suggests is that there's actually a lot of engagement by the the artists and the critics and the gallery directors, museum directors, with what's happening in Western Europe and North America. A lot of people might have this um, mistaken presumption that Yugoslavia, like a lot of the rest of communist Europe, had kind of cut itself off from uh, that kind of international engagement, that it didn't have uh, much of a, a response to the, the capitalist West. But actually, uh, what's really striking about Yugoslavia and why so many people talk about it as being this kind of special case within Europe uh, through the 20th century is that, in fact, it was a much more complicated set of relationships that's going on and that artists and, and others were very much thinking about what was happening in West Germany, in France, in Great Britain. Did you find that that was a really striking part to the research that you engaged in when you were in Yugoslavia in the archives and speaking with the artists themselves, that they were very much thinking about what was happening in other parts of Europe and, and in North America? Yes, absolutely. I think that there is this kind of 
the kind of general consensus for a lot of artists is they wanted to take part in developments that were happening outside of Yugoslavia, but they also wanted to kind of uh, address and uh, participate in these developments through their own kind of particular political circumstances and through the lens of socialist self-management. So already in the 1960s, you see a lot of kind of practices that are critiquing the movement's ultimate subservience to and co-optation by the art market. So, for example, in Zagreb in uh, 1972, you have a curator called Jelimir Kostovic, who was supposed to be kind of exhibiting the now famous male art section of the Biennale des Jeunes in the SC gallery space. But instead of exhibiting the works on the walls they were intended, he just displayed the box itself to kind of critique the fact that something that was meant to be kind of about radically breaking away with the commodity status of the art object had become so commercialized and commodified that it had, you know, that it was being shown in a biennial. And I think that this also connects to a kind of growing kind of fears over the direction in which the socialist project itself was heading in. So this kind of connection between a critique of Western conceptual arts political economy was connected to or aligned to concerns and deeper fails over Yugoslav socialism at that time. This continues happening throughout the first three chapters. As you mentioned, uh, Joseph Boyce, for example, comes to Belgrade in uh, 1974 and is invited to take part in what was known as the April Meetings, which was this very well-known international art fair and almost as a canonical art status in Yugoslav art historiography, which was kind of a quite catalytic moment for us in Yugoslavia, who were becoming increasingly critical of or cynical of Western artists because of the kind of careerism and the amount of money that was associated with these individuals. And this is particularly registered in one text which was published in the New York Journal of Fox, in which one of the collaborators with Belgrade Students Cultural Centre Gallery, Jasna Tjadovic, talks about her scepticism that Yugoslav artists felt as to why these artists who were visiting, who were allegedly Marxists, were seen as being so powerful and important. And in this text, she kind of declares that, which is interesting, that a lot of artists were kind of, Yugoslav artists were frustrated about the fact that they weren't getting any recognition abroad. Um, so they decided instead to develop an art practice that was somehow based on the notion of Yugoslav self-management to make something that was uh, kind of connected to their society and that was based on their own grounds. And so I think that within this climate, a lot of artists began to interpret contemporary Western art through their own particular uh, cultural circumstances. But then on the other hand, I mean, another option was for artists to leave Yugoslavia and to go and forge a career abroad. And this was most notably seen in, with Marina Abramovich's career, for example, where she left Belgrade, I think, in the mid-1970s. And it's interesting that this kind of misunderstanding of Yugoslav artists is particularly visible or apparent in the third chapter, in which you have critics and artists and theorists visiting Belgrade. But there's this kind of misunderstanding about Yugoslav artists kind of still being ultimately belonging to the East and being socialist artists and somehow their work being steeped in ideology and not being able to uh, participate in these broader international developments. So there's this kind of tension there, I think, which I try to tease out in my work. Uh, in the book itself. Were there lots of sort of big debates or even tensions, sometimes violence even, between the artists who were based in Belgrade or Zagreb and the, the, the people who were coming in from New York or from Edinburgh, I think about DeMarco or from, from West Germany? Because I know that 
less than 20 years later, when those kinds of exchanges are happening, there's often this, this just disconnect that happens that can actually lead to not just sort of spoken clashes, but sometimes quite physical clashes between people when they're encountering each other because of these myths and misconceptions about people from the East supposed to be acting or behaving in certain ways and people from the capitalist West supposedly behaving in certain ways. Was there a similar thing that happened in the 1960s and 1970s when some of these meetings were taking place? Or physical altercations or disagreements. Just events. disagreements. Because I'm mean, sort of imagining somebody from New York, like Michael Corus, steeped in art and language and, and thinking about Marxism in certain ways and then finding himself in, in Yugoslavia. And the realities on the ground would have been very different. Well, in the case of someone like Michael Corris in New York's art and language visiting Belgrade, I think that it's interesting how their visit coincided with quite a seminal moment in art and language's own development, where arts in New York were kind of beginning to address the kind of political conditions that predetermined their work through the Journal of the Fox and the like. So I don't think that in that case there was necessarily an agreement. I think there was an intense curiosity coming from New York artists who were coming to Yugoslavia to try and learn from the experience of New York, uh, from work in self-management. But at the same time, I think that even from their visit, there was this kind of scepticism, this kind of disillusionment, because they had all these ideas of this project being so progressive and radical, this idea of a full feedback, bottom-up, uh, socialist participatory democracy, uh, wherein... These artists were, however, working in the margins in these youth cultural institutions at the fringes of, and edges of society. And in a way, I think that these kinds of interactions and these um, encounters was a really productive uh, kind of experience for both Yugoslav artists and visiting artists. There's a sense in which they were both learning from and kind of developing their kind of ideas and thoughts from kind of the maybe the misconceptions or the assumptions or the prejudices that were coming from outside. But it's interesting, this concept of uh, mistranslation or misunderstanding. I mean, it, it also leads in the case of Belgrade to this kind of total abandonment or a kind of rejection of the, the currents of the tenets in which kind of Western conceptual art was based with this artist called Gordon Georgievich, who at one point decides to kind of present a short history of art where he essentially traces with pencil a kind of linear canonical work view history of linear canonical kind of account of Western art history, which ends up with kind of conceptualism uh, at the end of it, and also then brings in this kind of copying and reproduction imitation as a kind of critique of the ideas of, of authorship and uh, individuality, etc. and also tries to kind of affect this international artist strike at one point as well, which I think is quite significant, trying to kind of mobilise the international art world to strike against the kinds of structure the power structures or the pressures or the kinds of um, conditions which you know weren't only felt by artists in Yugoslavia but were also felt by artists in the western parts of the world and in western Europe and North America. And in fact right through the 1970s the number of artists are precisely trying to engage with strikes with different kinds of labour action as a way of uh, attempting to reimagine what the international and local art worlds might be. You know, Lina Zano being perhaps one of the, the most striking of those examples by saying that she's going to withdraw from the art world entirely. But even someone like Te Ching Tse, uh, working in, in New York after having emigrated from Taiwan, again, sort of trying to leave the art world as itself a mode of art practice. And I think one of the really amazing things about this book is how in detail you explore what Gordon Georgievich is doing, not just within 
Yugoslavia, but as itself a kind of an attempt at, at transcultural engagement by contacting people like Lucy Lepard and Hans Harker and others to see whether they will respond, you know, not just to have to strike in the first place, but whether they'll respond to somebody who is based or from a part of the world that they might only have myths and misconceptions about. Now, I think that's really, really striking is how many of those artists actually do respond, even if it's very critical towards the notion of what a strike might be. Um, but it does suggest that there's this attempt at across the Atlantic in different parts of the world to, to see if different kinds of art worlds might be possible by just withdrawing modes of labor, modes of expected labor, in order to generate something that's quite different. Maybe another thing about Georgievich that's really striking is the copying, because that's become almost the, the staple of a way of thinking about postmodernism, which if we're thinking about Frederick Jamison or other people, is so often associated with uh, a kind of a pop cultural or cultural studies set of conditions, as you were saying, that, that's deeply informed by capitalism and engagements with advertising and commodity status. But if that's not necessarily um, available within Yugoslavia or indeed other parts of Europe, then how does copying function for somebody like Djordovic or indeed others like Mladen Stilinovic that you mentioned before? Is it a similar kind of practice of copying as we might find with, I don't know, somebody like Louise Lawler? Jeff Koons as that sort of bastion of postmodernism in 1980s New York? No, I don't think it is necessarily the same. I think it's striking and interesting that Djordjevic's work kind of emerges in parallel with this kind of rise of appropriation art in New York. But as you say, I think that whereas appropriation art is kind of highly linked and connected to capitalist practices and kind of undermining the notion of originality and authorship, I think that in Djordjevic's example, I think it's kind of an expression of the kind of disillusionment over the kind of direction in which the new art practice was heading and this sense of exhaustion and depletion, this feeling that despite kind of the new art practice's ambitions of creating an art that was engaging with society that transcended the art institution and that was somehow connected to the system of socialist self-management and ended up in the complete misunderstanding and a complete denial in the local art scene where these artists were still kind of working within these, within the fringes, within these kind of marginal institutions. And I think that there is also kind of a humour to the, his approach to copying as well, where he chose to copy the first ever work of art that he produced as a, you know, as a teenager, uh, this work called The Harbiters of the Apocalypse. And also with that work itself, he invited people from, I think, 50 other artists to actually replicate this work. So once again, there is this renunciation of an individual artistic identity and this means of establishing a kind of forms of cross a collaboration and kind of working together, even if the kind of ultimate goal is something that seems kind of pointless or not necessarily pointless, but is kind of, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Well, exhausted, isn't it? Exhausted, yeah but also intentionally subversive. And I think there is an element of humour at play. And, you know, with that particular gesture, it was shown in the yes case in the Student Centre Gallery in Belgrade, but it was also shown in this private apartment. I think that it's interesting how these spaces, these youth cultural institutions, I think that the kind of running theme in the first three chapters is that the institutions themselves also kind of reach a point of exhaustion. So the way in which the book itself is structured is it begins with uh, Zagreb Student Centre Gallery begins from the mid-1960s. And I think that the 
ends in 1973 or so, in the second chapter, focuses on a particular moment in uh, Novi Sad, which is a kind of overlooked case in which artists who were, again, engaged with kind of questions of authorship and participation kind of went into direct political provocation. And there is this kind of ultimate dilution uh, of artistic practices in the city, which forced artists to kind of appeal to an invisible art, whereby they just sat outside a local store and drank Coca-Cola and hung out with friends. And this was kind of a form of artistic activity. The same with Belgrade by the mid-1970s. It seems to reach kind of a breaking point uh, in which the kind of artists who are working with the institution aren't necessarily seeing eye to eye and there are disagreements or rivalries and also artists no longer see it as a kind of viable way of working so there's this kind of moving out of these spaces into other kind of confines or potentially private spaces etc which I think is quite interesting so you could say there is a kind of running theme of exhaustion and depletion and kind of disillusionment that seems to take place in the kind of first half of the book and that's also going against the, the again some of the presumptions that people might have about what the role that art plays and the role that artist plays within a socialist context. I and mean, we're so used to this idea as the heroic socialist artist presenting propaganda. But if if the artists are actually withdrawing that myth of what an art can artist can do and what art should be doing for society, then it's a very different way of thinking about um, the playfulness of art. And I. I guess one of the questions that emerges for me then is is thinking about this, as you said, sort of disillusionment, dissatisfaction uh, that's very playful in relation to society, in relation to labour, and the fact that these are often really young artists. They're only in their their 20s for the most part um, when they're making these works. To what extent is this about hippie culture and and counterculture and all the, the sort of youth movements that come through Europe and worldwide after 68 in particular. Are a lot of these artists engaging with those kinds of, of counterculture hippie movements in Yugoslavia at the time, or is that an anachronism that we might associate with, with the country at that point? Well, I think that some artists were certainly engaging with the kinds of uh, countercultures and hippie movements that were cycling in uh, youth circles in Western Europe. And I think that this is particularly felt in the group Oho from Slovenia um, and their kind of idea their philosophical kind of project of raism, which was trying to kind of uh, explore new relationships between man and objects. But I think that this happens early on. What I found really striking about the, the kind of early proponents of the new art practice is that they weren't necessarily influenced by countercultures and hippie culture, but more by the kind of idea, the ideas of the new left and the work of the theorists such as Marcuse. And they were generally trying to kind of align their practice to something that could correspond to the kind of core tenets of Yugoslav socialism. But I think that, you know, what we were talking about, this kind of exhaustion takes place following experiences of defeat. A lot of artists kind of felt as though, as Sanya Rebekovic, for example, herself put it, the kind of artistic language they were trying to, to, to use was so kind of radical and, and new that the audiences for it was, were really limited. But I think this also kind of links to the global kind of currents of 1968 and how they played out in Yugoslavia. So I think that it's interesting that the events of 1968 in Paris were, were perceived by the League of Communist Yugoslavia as being a kind of confirmation of the fact that their system was kind of going in the right direction. This kind of call for autogestion, et cetera, was seen as a kind of validation of the kind of key tenets of Yugoslav socialism. 
and the same kind of applies to the the Prague Spring and Alexander Dubček's reforms and this kind of attempt to establish uh, socialism with a human face. It was seen as a kind of confirmation of the fact the influence of Yugoslav socialism was spreading within the Eastern Bloc itself. And in Yugoslavia itself, uh, the kind of 1968 uh, began in Belgrade as a week-long series of protests which were struggling against uh, the negative results that had emerged from a series of uh, market reforms that were reduced, uh, introduced uh, in the mid-1950s, which resulted in a rising unemployment and a kind of precarity and instability. Um, so students were kind of denouncing the rise of a uh, red bourgeoisie and these kind of power structures that had begun to be kind of uh, consolidated or solidified. But the problem of mainstream accounts tend to argue that Although in Yugoslavia's 1968 was kind of denouncing privilege um, and these socialist barons, etc., they ultimately were still they they still still fit in within the kind of ideological project of worker self-management of Yugoslav self-management. So they didn't actually offer an alternative, which is what allows the president Tito, to kind of neutralize and pacify the protest, and also what resulted in a wave of repression and a kind of return to a firm hand rule for a couple of a couple of years. But I think that this kind of political moment also is inflected in the kind of shift in the new art practice itself and also speaks to how both artists were responding to kind of specific political the specific political situation and the kind of shifting tides of their particular context, but also in some ways adapting to or kind of changing their kind of what forms of engagement in response to these events. And so that's kind of what I tried to do with this work, is I wanted to show how also both responding to and adapting to, and also in many ways entering into the political arena through their kind of artistic activities. Yeah, and also I think uh, one of the, the really great successes of the research that you did was it's not just about the, the, sort of the intellectual politics that are at play here. I think one of the things that's really striking is that it's very much about these friends getting together and and the, the lived experiences coming out of those 60s and early 70s moments of people having Coca-Cola and other kinds of drinks out on the street right through to the, the situation in Ljubljana where it's about this coffee there and people going to, to, to the disco and that's setting up a space for a, a different way of, of thinking about how life might be lived for this generation. A lot of friends getting together forming art collectives, forming groups. They're not necessarily studying together or anything like that, but they are in these similar spaces, which are often spaces of leisure, of belonging, um, and that creates a different kind of context in which something distinct might emerge. I mean, even the, the that amazing last chapter on Sarajevo, which is a, a city that is so often forgotten or ignored in the history of Yugoslavia until the Winter Olympics in 1984 and then the, the, the wars in the 1990s, just that sense of, of things happening in the street, people being playful and friendly with each other in the street. And it's almost like the audience is each other's friends. And this this situation of friendship, which of course is one of the, the stereotypes of Yugoslav socialism, is the idea of brotherhood and friendship. And here it's actually being played out in a, a very different way. Did you find that as well? This, this, you know, when you were engaging in in the writing and the research, that actually some of the things that had been rhetoricized by people like Tito or Cadell and others were actually manifesting in in similar but 
quite different ways at the same time in the artworks that, that were being produced. You mean uh, in terms of what you were talking about, friendship and kind of solidarities? I think so. I mean, going back to this discussion about the kind of status or the function of students' cultural centres themselves, I think that it's important that there was a kind of informality to the arrangement. As you say, this became, they became kind of gathering spaces for arts to kind of informally uh, get together and to kind of discuss and experiment and exhibit their works without having to kind of apply for proposals or have to go through the larger exhibitions. Um, so it was a way of kind of bypassing these kinds of um, strictures or these kinds of um, regulations or rules. And I think, you know, what this book really demonstrates is that the reason why the Yugoslav New York practice was inherently a Yugoslav phenomenon is because the kind of interactions and the exchanges between the various centres were what was vital to kind of sustaining it and upholding it. So I think that what was interesting when I interviewed a lot of artists is this kind of feeling that what was there was so unique and kind of special and kind of unique both in terms of the environment, the political environment in which it was fostered and, and uh, in which it flourished and thrived, but also unique in terms of the fact that, you know, it was a collection and a kind of a, amalgamation of these small local scenes that were somehow working together and spaces in which kind of ideas were circulating through various kind of modes of distribution and in which um, ideas were kind of being recast, reinvented and reinvigorated all the time. And this is why I kind of try to establish this wider and longer historical narrative that goes beyond the period of the New York practice into the emergence of kind of uh, Ljubljana subcultural scene, as you, as you were saying, the connection between a kind of rising alternative art scene and alternative art practices uh, in defence of kind of new social movements, single issue social movements. And finally, to conclude with the scene in Sarajevo, which for a long time was kind of, wasn't, connected to the New York practice itself, but had this cultural awakening in the 1980s, which, and tried to, well, and essentially hosted the kind of final and many respects most significant Yugoslav art event, uh, the Yugoslav Documenta, which consisted of artists throughout the whole federation uh, taking part in this kind of regionally focused event. And so I think that this is one thing that is really important to the book and what was important to me was to highlight how and why the new art practice and the Yugoslav art scenes emerged as a as, as, as a result of, of these kinds of interactions and exchanges, both on a local level, but also on a kind of wider or Yugoslav regional level. And as we were saying before, then at the same time, how it was kind of looking to outside of Yugoslavia, kind of establishing these kinds of networks of, of communication with artists in Western Europe and North America. Although I think it is interesting that the artists were primarily looking towards, as you were saying, the North Atlantic region, considering that Yugoslavia is one of the key kind of cornerstones of Yugoslav society was non-alignment. Um, it's interesting that new art practices um, and the practices which this book kind of engages with are kind of largely reacting to, although very often in a critical way, to parallel developments happening in North America and Western Europe. Yeah, I was sort of struck by just thinking then about what you were saying, this, this sense that it's the informal connections that then become the basis of this his, set of histories. They're informal histories. I know that people like Zdenka Badovinac and others have talked about interrupted histories and alternative histories, forgotten histories. But actually what emerges, I think, from your study is that these are much more about informal histories and then that sense of connecting, communicating with people like Chorus or DeMarco or Boyce or whoever 
on that informal, surprisingly friendly way and seeing what might come back through those sets of responses. But that means that they're having to find a, a lingua franca to communicate with with people outside Yugoslavia, and often that's English. And whether there was that same sense that, for instance, with non-alignment, that they could engage with with other artists in in non-aligned countries in English rather than say in French or in Spanish. And I wonder if that kind of feeds into the fact that they're looking to the North Atlantic, not just obviously the the, the, the influence of capitalism as as Yugoslavia becomes, shall we say, a little bit more capitalized um, and that pop starts to emerge as a very important phenomenon with people like Sanya Vekovic, but also just thinking about the practicalities and pragmatics of how the artists and, and others engaging with people outside the Federation of Yugoslavia. Sort of wonder whether that ties in through the informalities as well. Hmm. So whether the, what do you think, because of the kind of linguistic convenience and the fact that they were able to forge these networks, because is this what you're proposing? I don't know. I think one of the things that emerges from from the study is that because it is very much about informality, you know, that drive to to have a very uh, close and yeah informal sense of of communication means that the art is going to be looking in in particular directions. It's like a chicken and egg. Are they they able to have this informality because they are steeped in in English because of, of popular culture that's coming into Yugoslavia? Or are they looking towards the North Atlantic because they're trying to set up different kinds of, of possibilities through the, the languages that they know? It's a, it, another one of these tensions that I think emerges throughout the, the, the book, but also I think in the history of Yugoslavia itself, which is constantly sort of shifting between looking to the North Atlantic, looking to non-alignment, looking within itself as a federation, but also the, the, the nationalisms that emerge even within Federation. It's always this series of tensions and paradoxes that makes the Yugoslav uh, situation indeed very uh, slippery and quite unique in, in relation to the rest of the world. And in many respects, the the, the artists and the art centres and and the, the newspapers and magazines that emerge from that period are almost, you know, despite the, the some of the resistance that the protagonists might have had to what Yugoslavia was meant to mean what it was meant to be, according to Tito and others, actually it still becomes very much a Yugoslav history because of those those tensions and paradoxes. And that makes me think then about the fact that Yugoslavia has become a really interesting and important signifier again in recent years, you know, after the, the supposed dissolution or so-called dissolution of, of Yugoslavia in the early 1990s. Now we're in a, a situation where you know, the idea of what Yugoslavia might have been as almost like an experiment in the 20th century is starting to regain an interest for a number of, of artists and curators and thinkers. And in a sense, the book, by making these connections between these different cities and, and, and cultural centres and artists across the Federation, it's trying to, it's almost doing the same kind of thing or a similar kind of thing by setting up uh, an idea of this Federation of Art Practices. And I guess uh, maybe a provocative question I can to you is is this a monument this book a monument to yugoslavia that's such an interesting question i mean i think that this word monument itself is so kind of loaded and charged especially in light of what's happening at the moment with the poppling of statues etc and this kind of call to decolonization 
I think that in the Yugoslav context, this idea of monuments also kind of brings to mind the kind of attempt to erase a kind of all com- a common all Yugoslav legacy um, through the kind of violent destruction uh, of uh, monuments that were erected um, in commemoration of the anti-fascist national liberation struggle and this violent kind of effort to dismantle and dismember this kind of Yugoslav history. Uh, as to whether this book is a monument, I don't think it's necessarily a monument. I think that what was important for me was to try and kind of establish this kind of pan-Yugoslav history and to kind of bring together these uh, narratives which are often treated in isolation, self-contained and hermetically sealed, and to show how these kinds of individual scenes operated in relation to one another and thrived and grew because of the kinds of uh, various interactions and exchanges that um, the the spaces which I focus on solicited, but also because of these individuals and the, the kind of efforts in which they were seeking to kind of go beyond their kind of local scenes uh, into into kind of the wider Yugoslav region. I think that there is this kind of tendency to, especially uh, today, to focus on kind of Yugoslavia, the kind of um, ideas which Yugoslavia represented. So it's leading position in the non-aligned movement. It's unique third-way social system which was based on workers self-management federal arrangement which was uh, founded on this concept of brotherhood and unity this is kind of a tendency to kind of fetishize or to kind of um, or kind of nostalgia for this past which no longer exists and in my work while i tried to kind of explore the kind of ideas that uh, underpin yugoslavia at the same time i want to kind of show how Yugoslavia's decline as this disintegration was was connected to kind of wider changes in, in the international environment, how it occurred over a prolonged period of time and how it was connected to the bigger history of global capitalism and the kind of eventual consolidation of neoliberal capitalism. Um, so I would say that it's not necessarily a monument because I want to kind of explore, I, the book explores the kinds of as I say, the successes, but also the failures of these art practices in view of the kind of countries that are violent disintegration in the 1990s. But at the same time, I kind of want to highlight the ways in which kind of individuals and collectives associated with the scene were seeking to step out of national frames and kind of pursue this kind of supranational cultural field, which I think has a lot of relevance and resonance today, uh, particularly in view of the kind of worries and political processes that have taken up hold over the past 20 years, a time in which many countries are kind of retreating and this kind of return to parochialism and this this kind of rise of both right-wing nationalism and this and protectionism. Yeah, maybe the again sort of returning to notions of friendship and informality as a as a means of being able to you know, communicate across borders, you know, remanifesting themselves as you say, in, in really problematic ways, and that certainly within Yugoslavia led into a full-on warfare and siege and, and, and slaughter, um, which hopefully, you know, that's not to say that that's what's going to be happening in the world from the current moment, but I think you're quite right to, to sort of pinpoint this period as a marker of what could still be possible, both positively and negatively. And maybe that does inform the the interest. Maybe it is nostalgia for, for Yugoslavia at the moment, but also that desire to find other ways of thinking about the world. I think that's also been the case with non-alignment in general, um, not just with, with federations, including, of course, the European Union is itself a 
a federation of sorts that's that's precarious um, as Brexit I think has shown but the non-aligned movement as something that can create a different internationalism maybe one that does respond in a, in a different politics and a different set of economic engagements and, and equality at least rhetorically than, than what we've seen with neoliberalism but one of the complications with the Yugoslav situation seems to have been that you know who was allowed to be part of these discussions or who was was who are the key figures within this who are the people who've been remembered and i think that's reinforced by the the fact that these are informal histories you know how do these histories persist how do they survive if they're not necessarily going to be uh, recognized in those formal ways in archives and so on and the fact that so many of the figures seem to be men um, I certainly found that with the, the work that I've done on Lois Levanche, the, the um, art collective based in Ljubljana from 1984 onwards, is that you know, with only a couple of exceptions, it's all men who are the key figures within that group. Is gender something that you found was, you know, the, 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 the politics of gender and the need to think about gender within these these contexts, was that something that was very present for you as you were doing the research? And, and what might that also say about, you know, thinking about Yugoslavia as this kind of problematic model, challenging model for, for future politics and future connection. Oh, absolutely. And I think that it could even be seen as a kind of oversight in the book. I mean, what I think becomes very, very prevalent and something that's really striking about the work, as you say, is that the majority of the artists featured it are men. It's predominantly men who are the kind of key protagonists of the new art practice and and NSK, as you were referring to. Although, you know, it could be said that the kind of most well-known kind of new art practitioners and the ones who have kind of received the most recognition are the women, which is also interesting. And I think that also what I found conducting the research is that although the arts are predominantly male, many of the kind of key directors of these spaces and the kind of curators um, who were working through these spaces were women. Another thing that's really key is that the kinds of thinkers, uh, the theorists, the the writers who inform my work most are women, which I think is kind of inflected in the arguments, the kind of slightly more nuanced approach to Yugoslavia, which this book takes, which kind of goes against um, a slightly more kind of patriarchal, masculinist, nationalist frame in which certain art histories are located or placed. As for the concept of gender, I mean, it's something that haunts a lot of Eastern European art history and is explored by, you know, the likes of Buena Page, who was a curator, uh, who was affiliated with Belgrade Student Cultural Centre, who did this project called Gender Check, which was precisely connected to that. But in the case of Yugoslavia, I mean, what's interesting is that during the Second World War, women played a substantial role in the national liberation movement. I think that, you know, over 30% of, of the armed forces were women, you know, it was during this kind of revolutionary moment that there was a women's anti-fascist liberation front was uh, established. And it's interesting how from this kind of revolutionary moment, women were once again kind of marginalised and and pushed aside from the kind of gains that they'd they'd secured following the revolution. I think it definitely speaks volumes to kind of the failures or the kinds of um, issues that um, Yugoslav socialism had. And also, I think, sort of points to precisely where some of those futures might lie. I think very striking that, as you said, a lot of the 
the writers and historians you engage with are, are women, but also just thinking about some of the key protagonists within the art histories and curatorship and, and art practice, obviously, coming out of the, the, the countries of former Yugoslavia now are women. And so thinking about gender has to be right at the forefront of these possible um, modes of thinking about interconnected and intercultural futures that you know that these histories might engage with. I'm thinking about people like Susanna Milievska, Bojana Kors, as well as Bojana Page, of Ivana Vago and Antonio Miaccia, and of course, what, how, and for whom, Verhaver, the curatorial collective now running the course Halavin. So if there is you know, another way of, of kind of shattering that notion of the monument, it is precisely, I think, through that very critical way of thinking about the importance of a, a much greater gender equality coming out of uh, the otherwise quite masculinist histories that, that Yugoslavia had presented. So on that basis, again, I think the, the, the book presents a, a very striking way of, of thinking about what a globally interconnected set of art histories and art practices and curatorial practices might be, not just in terms of informality, not just in terms of, of site and space and locality, but also thinking about gender and as it engages with arts and cultural politics. Absolutely. And I think that this also kind of fits more broadly within scholarship that's focused on post-socialism at large, right, which has kind of traced and critiqued the kind of political and economic changes that accompanied the integration of former socialist countries into the system of global capitalism. And I think that, you know, it's interesting that these new studies are kind of uh, critiquing these kinds of transitions and trying to kind of engage with the socialist legacies in a more ambivalent way, in, in a way. So it's kind of, they're trying to unveil the potentials that socialism had, but it also like, it's contradictions. And this concerns, as you say, gender, but it also concerns questions of social justice, concerns also race. You know, for example, I know the Art Margins, the MIT Press Journal is currently focusing on questions of race within Eastern Europe and issues of race under socialism. The question is, is how to engage with the more kind of progressive tenets and currents of socialism while not kind of, um, not necessarily this nostalgia or this yearning for the past, uh, which I think is also quite harmful and potentially dangerous. There's kind of balancing those two kinds of considerations, um, which I think is key. Precisely. I think that might actually be a nice way to finish the conversation here. On a positive note, coming out of, of an extensive history and period of, of Yugoslavia, recognizing its failures, recognizing the traumas that emerged soon after the period that the book finishes on, but also the need for us to return to questions of, of race, gender, social justice, ecological justice, um, and, and, and so on, and culture part to play within that, not just art as a, a particular kind of object-based practice, but cultural practices more generally, including the arts, music, disco, a whole range of different things and, and writing so thank you again for your contribution to the field through your writing and through the, the thinking that allows to us to generate in response to the book you've produced congratulations thank you thank you for listening to the MIT Press Podcast and thank you to Marco and Anthony for that wonderful discussion if you'd like to support the podcast please make sure to subscribe and if you can head over to iTunes and give us a five-star review. Finally, before finishing, I'd like to say thank you to Samantha Doyle, who mixes and edits the podcast, and Kristen Galano, who produced the soundtrack. <laughs>